Morning, everyone. Uh, Can I ask you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 this morning. Uh, Our plan is that next Sunday we're going to return to our series in Acts and finish it off um, before we then get into Christmas things. Uh, But this morning I wanted to bring something that's particularly relevant to us on Remembrance Sunday. Am I echoing in a weird way? Or is that... Is it just me hearing that? It's just my voice. Um, so I thought, I want us to look at Romans 5. The title of this morning's message is Peace with God. Peace with God. And uh, if you find the passage, if you can, we'll read it in just a minute or two. But first of all, today is, of course, Remembrance Sunday. And I think there are several ways that you could sum up what Remembrance Sunday is about. It is, first of all, a commemoration, a reminder of all those men and women who have served and even lost their lives to protect our freedom and our way of life. Not just, of course, in two world wars, but in many other conflicts before and since as well. But Remembrance Sunday is also, secondly, it's a, it's a reminder of something bigger still. It's a reminder of man's ongoing need and quest for peace. The poppy that many of us are wearing this morning is a sign of both remembrance of the past, but also the hope of a peaceful future. Hope for a peace that so often in this broken world has only come about through sacrifice and bloodshed. A peace which is unfortunately often fragile and subject to being broken again as well, but but it symbolises our hope, our hope of peace. Remembrance Day, of course, itself is where it is on the calendar because it marks the end of hostilities at the end of the First World War. At 11am on the 11th of November 1918, an armistice was agreed uh, by the warring nations an agreement to suspend all hostilities, to stop the fighting, so that a peace deal could be worked out and signed. And what a welcome day of peace that must have been. After four long years of fighting, millions, over 15 million people killed, what a day of peace it must have been. If anything as well could make the, case for, make the case for establishing a true and lasting peace, surely it was thought at the time it was that war that had just taken place, the Great War, the war to end all wars. And for a little while it did result in peace. So shocked were the nations by the carnage that had been unleashed upon the world that they formed the League of Nations in 1919 as a means of preventing a similar war ever happening again. But of course, just 20 years later, that league failed and Hitler rose to power and invaded surrounding nations. And the Second World War began with over 60 million people losing their lives. After World War II, again, peace was pursued. The United Nations was formed for that very purpose. And while the UN has undoubtedly done much good work, still it could not protect and ensure peace across many parts of the world in the years since. As one political leader once said, making peace, I have found, is much harder than making war. That is true in a broken world like the one we live in. Making peace is much harder than making war. The quest for peace is a noble one, 
But ultimately, whatever peace we can muster as human beings is fragile and imperfect and subject to breaking down. But what I want to draw our attention to this morning is that there is a place where true and lasting peace can be found. A peace, in fact, which is not only more powerful and more vital than peace amongst nations, but a peace which will one day lead to a universal peace throughout all of creation. Our passage this morning is all about this true and lasting peace. The greatest peace that people and nations could ever hope to find. The ultimate armistice day. Peace with God. It's that ultimate peace with God that we're going to focus our attention on now as we turn to God's word. I'm going to read from Romans 5 verse 1 which begins with this incredible pronouncement. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There is so much in this passage, and I do not intend to unpack everything here this morning, but instead I just want us to focus on three things together. We're going to see... First of all, the need for peace with God. Secondly, the gift of peace with God. And thirdly, the price of peace with God. So first of all, the need for peace with God. Our passage this morning begins with an incredible pronouncement. A pronouncement that the greatest of all wars ever is over that an armistice has been reached, that a peace deal has been signed, that the people to whom Paul is writing have found true and lasting peace forever. The question, of course, at that point is, who is this peace with and why is there a need for it in the first place? The simple answer is that there have been two parties that have been in a state of war. That's the simple answer. The more shocking truth is that these two parties are none other than man and God. And perhaps most shocking of all, although maybe it's not surprising, we started it. We were the ones who chose to go to war with God. Ours was the aggression, 
the hostility and the sin that triggered it. We are the Hitlers in this conflict, rising in, in anger and rebellion and waging war and violence where we should not go. And Paul here in this passage uses four striking terms to describe our natural hostility towards God as human beings. Four terms, all of which speak the cold, hard truth about what we are like, whether we like it or not. And none of which say anything positive about us and our rebellion against God. First of all, Paul says we were sinners, verse 8. God is holy and he is just and he is right in all of his ways. He is altogether good and pure. We, on the other hand, were nothing of the sort. We were sinners through and through. Now, despite popular understanding, perhaps out there, especially in the world, a sinner is not someone who just happens to be worse than everybody else. Nor is it simply a person who, on balance in the scales, has ends up doing more bad things than good. Now, the Bible tells us that a sinner is a person who has fallen short of meeting God's standard of perfect holiness and goodness. To sin is to fall short. According to Romans 3.23, a little earlier in this letter, we all fall short a long way. For all have sinned, Paul writes, and fall short of the glory of God. So we were sinners. Secondly, Paul describes us as ungodly, verse 6. Now this word ungodly, it doesn't just mean we're not like God. Uh, in many ways, we're not like him. In some ways, we are like him. That's the way he made us. But this word ungodly captures the idea that human beings are not just lawbreakers in the abstract. We didn't just accidentally break God's laws. We didn't just accidentally go off on a different path, on a different set of standards to him. No, we are actively and personally opposed to God. In our heart of hearts, before he saved us, we hated him. We sinned deliberately, precisely because we were opposed to him. We wanted to rebel against our creator. God is altogether good and holy, but we rejected his standards of goodness. We called right what he calls wrong, and we called wrong what he calls right. Ungodliness, then, is a personal thing. It describes our fierce opposition to God himself, that given half a chance, as someone once put it, given half a chance, we would have dragged God from his throne, cast him to hell, and crushed him into nothingness, if that were possible. Which is, of course, precisely what we did. Precisely what humanity did when God came down amongst us in the person of his son, we crucified him. And as a result of our sin and our ungodliness, we were therefore, thirdly, Paul says, God's enemies. Verse 10. This is something that Paul sets out to describe in much more detail earlier on in this letter to the Romans, that because of our sin and our ungodly behavior, God is not at peace with us. He was at war. And the, you see, the hostility, it was no longer a one-way thing. We started it, but it became a two-way thing. God didn't just look passively on our rebellion and do nothing about it. No, in response, he revealed his judgment 
and his holy displeasure. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we, the Bible is telling us, we wrongly, criminally turned against our maker, but he then rightly and justly turned against us in response. Which is why, fourthly and finally, even if we had wanted to then end the hostility, which we didn't, but even if we did, we would have been helpless, verse 6. That's what that word weak means in verse 6. We, we were utterly powerless, we were helpless to do anything to broker peace ourselves. There was nothing we could do to make amends. Nothing we could do to make peace with our God. We remained vehemently opposed to him, dead in our transgressions and sins, without God and without hope in this world. And though, though we, we can't, we're not going to delve any deeper into this aspect of things this morning, this right here is the real root cause of all human wars and all personal conflict down the ages. From nations fighting nations and millions dying to neighbours arguing over the height of a garden fence or families falling out around the dinner table at tea. Once we turned against our God, we inevitably turned against other people as well. People who were made in the very image of God, we went to war with them as well in big ways and in small. So the sad truth is this morning that the real cause of all the war and hostility out there in the world is alive and well in every human heart. The seed of it is there in our hearts as well. Okay, why, why are we spending so long talking about the corruptness of our own hearts this morning when we're going to be talking about peace? Well, it's because it's only when we are willing to face the darkness, not just out there in the world, but the darkness that's in here, in each of our chests, in each of our hearts, towards God, that we can really begin to start to appreciate the miracle that Paul speaks about in Romans 5 verse 1 when he says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are meant to be shocked. How is it that we can have peace with God? This, this verse is a miracle in our Bibles. This turnaround is incredible that remarkably and miraculously in a world still so desperately in search of true and lasting peace, God has already made a way for us to find and experience the greatest peace of all, peace between man and God, which will, as I said earlier on, also one day be the ultimate cure to bring peace between man and man as well. So let's move on then to consider now, secondly this morning, this gift of peace with God. The gift of peace with God. Uh, one writer, Donald Gray Barnhouse, once said, Every soul has been at war with God. How is the warfare to be brought to an end? God has made peace. And no other peace can be made except that which he has already made. God has made this peace. But what kind of peace is it? What kind of peace is this peace that God has made? It is, first and foremost, most importantly, an objective peace. 
Sometimes we speak, don't we, of peace subjectively. We speak of peace as a feeling. And the Bible does that as well. It, it speaks elsewhere of peace, the peace that God can give to us that is subjective, a peace that is felt and experienced by us, especially in the midst of trials and difficulties. Uh, maybe as I talk about that, Philippians 4 comes to your mind. That's an obvious one, isn't it? A wonderful couple of verses. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul there is talking about the peace of God. A feeling of calmness and even tranquility in the midst of troubles. It is a wonderful kind of peace that the Lord can grant to us. The peace of God guarding our hearts and minds. But if we're honest and if we're realistic, we don't always experience that kind of peace, do we? We don't always feel that peace in our hearts. Sometimes we forget to pray for it and ask for it. Sometimes we lose it or misplace it. And that's why we call it a subjective peace. It's a peace that's subject somewhat to how we feel. But that's not the kind of peace that Paul's describing here in Romans 5. Here he's talking about a peace with God, not of God, but with God. He's talking about a state of affairs rather than just a state of mind. About an external unalterable peace that now exists between every Christian believer and God, whether or not we feel it today or not, whether our hearts today are troubled or not, whether or not we feel a great deal of assurance about this peace or not, this peace lies entirely outside of ourselves in the concrete facts of what God has done. This peace is wonderfully unaltered by our feelings. Paul sums up the, the objective nature of this piece with two important words, words hopefully many of us are familiar with. He talks of being justified and reconciled. Verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God, to be, to be declared right with our God once and for all. It's the legal language of being cleared from all the charges against us in God's courtroom. Cleared of the judgment due to us for our sin. That judgment is cancelled in full, removed and taken by him entirely forever. And then in verse 10, he adds the picture of reconciliation. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This time it's not a legal term, it's a relational one. In some ways, it's even better. It's a relational one. Everything that formerly separated us from relating to our God while we were his enemies, all of our sin and that guilt and his wrath and our condemnation, it's all been removed. So that relationship with God, such as Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden, has been objectively restored. In fact, when, when the first Adam what the, what the first Adam lost when he ate from the tree, the second Adam restored when he was nailed to a tree. So that now all who seek peace with God through his son can have it in full. Now we can draw near to God. 
If you're a Christian here this morning, you are at peace with God. This peace with God is yours already. This peace is not something we need to work at or maintain. This morning, if you're a Christian, you woke up at peace with God and whatever took place after you woke up, whatever takes place this morning and this afternoon, this evening, you will go to bed to sleep at peace with God. Nothing can ruin this peace between him and us, between him and you. For there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is instead this objective, ever-present, everlasting bedrock of peace between us and God. Christianity is not a list of instructions on how to make peace with God. Christianity is an announcement from God that peace has already been won by his mighty and merciful hand. It is an announcement that the battle is already over for those who want it to be. That you and I and every kind of sinner can have truly everlasting, absolute peace with God forever. But only as a gift from God himself. And it can only be received by those who put their faith in his son. So here it is. This is the only true and lasting peace that exists in this world. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But how, we might wonder, could this be? We put together the two things we've seen already this morning. We think, how could it be that we, who were the aggressors against God, who started a war with God, we who were the ones both unable and unwilling to ever bring it to an end and make peace and make amends, how could it be when we are the guilty ones, guilty of the most terrible crimes against our maker, deserving of only judgment and death, How could peace with God now be offered so freely and be enjoyed so completely by us this morning? Because there is a price that has already been paid. And so thirdly and finally this morning, here is the price of peace with God. Everything in this world, people say, has a price. I'm not sure that's true, but I suppose it's true in a lot of things, isn't it? Everything has a price. Uh, Whether it's a monetary price, you know, if you want a nice car with leather seats, you're going to have to pay for it. Whether it's an emotional price, you want to befriend someone who uh, is in need of help. Uh, They have a lot of needs. It'll take it out of us emotionally. It's good and worthwhile, but there's a price to pay. Or there can be a time price to things. You could... Walk, a dog, walk your dog for half an hour every day, but that's half an hour less time that you could be watching TV or getting on with your work. The best things in life often come at a price. And peace, which is so wonderful, is often very costly. Especially where there's been war and hostility, peace is a costly thing. Even temporary peace is often only won through sacrifice. We only have to think about the temporary peace that was brought about by the end of the First World War again, that even such a fragile peace was only one, was only built upon the sacrifice of millions of lives. So the question is, what might the price of peace be? What might the necessary sacrifice be when it comes to our being given everlasting peace 
with God. Paul tells us the price of peace with God was nothing less than God's own son. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. David Clarkson, who was a 17th century pastor and he was a, uh, a colleague of the great John Owen, he once said of this verse, this verse is the sum of the gospel, the foundation of Christianity, the root and spring of all our comforts and hopes, of all our happiness here and hereafter, that Christ died and that he died for the ungodly. It's as if Paul is recalling to himself here the words of Jesus, Matthew 9:13, "For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God sent Christ to die, not for the worthy, but for the unworthy. Not for the deserving, but for the undeserving, for sinners such as you and I. And it's this remarkable fact. Not just that Christ died, not just that he died in the place of others, but that he died in the place of the most undeserving people imaginable. It's that fact that Paul wants to draw out and highlight so powerfully here so that, so that our hearts would be stirred to worship and so that we would have the fullest assurance that we have peace with God. He says, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is, of course, he's drawing a contrast here for us. He's comparing what God has done in dying for sinners with what human beings might sometimes, on rare occasions, be willing to do for one another. So he says, on, on the rarest of occasions, a person might sacrifice their own life for another person. Maybe it's even a stranger, someone they don't know, but simply someone they consider to be morally upright, a righteous person, someone they consider to be good, innocent, law-abiding. And perhaps, he says, a little more often, a person will lay down their life for someone they consider to be truly good. Maybe now he's thinking of someone that they know this person, they've seen this person's goodness. Someone who has done much good or whose goodness is just obvious and genuine and appealing. Sometimes a person will lay down their lives for someone like that, maybe for someone they love. And this verse here, it in no way belittles those kind of sacrifices. It's what we're remembering today. We rightly catch a glimpse of God's love, of divine love, when we hear of men and women sacrificing their lives to protect and save others. I read an illustration of just this kind of exceptional human love and sacrifice this week. It was a story of two men who had become trapped in a mine and there'd been this cave-in and poisonous gas was being released in there. And there was one man in there and he had a gas mask uh, this man, by the way, uh, had a wife and three children back at home. He's in there, he has a mask, but his mask has become damaged. It's cracked. It's no good. And that, but there is a second man trapped with him. And this second man took off his own mask and forced it onto the first man, saying, you have a wife and children. They need you. I'm alone and I can go. And James Montgomery Boyce, who shared this story, he said, when we hear stories like that, we sense that we're on hallowed grounds. 
In them we recognize something of the highest human love. Yet, when we read of the love of God in Romans 5, we learn that it was not for those who were close to him or who loved him that Jesus died, but for those who were opposed to God and were his enemies. That is what this morning makes God's love here so remarkable. The Son of God laid down his life in the most excruciating and agonizing way, not to save those who loved him. That would be an amazing sacrifice in itself. But he didn't do it to save those who loved him, but those who hated him. Not to save the godly, but the ungodly. Not the righteous, but sinners. Christ sacrificed himself for his enemies. Sometimes the only way to win peace for our friends has been to go to war against an enemy. But Christ won peace for those who opposed him by laying down his life for his enemies. That's what makes it so unique. He didn't go to war against his enemies. He died for them. While we were still sinners, if you're looking for a verse or a phrase to put up somewhere, around your house, on your fridge, in your office. Here's a great one. While we were still sinners. It's just the most incredible little half sentence when thinking about what Christ has done for us. I wonder if we often forget it. It was while we were still sinners. Here is a sacrifice unlike anything our war-torn world is used to seeing. Let me share with you another story I heard this week that at least begins to illustrate the radical, the, the shocking and surprising nature of Christ's love for us, for his enemies here. It's from a, a commentary on Romans by Kent Hughes. He, he's, he wrote, During the Revolutionary War, there was a faithful preacher of the gospel by the name of Peter Miller. He lived near a fellow who hated him intensely for his Christian life and testimony. In fact, this man violently opposed him and ridiculed his followers. One day, the unbeliever was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Hearing about this, Peter Miller set out on foot to intercede for the man's life before George Washington. The general listened to the minister's earnest plea, but told him he didn't feel he should pardon this, this his friend. My friend? He's not my friend, answered Miller. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. What? said Washington. You have walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy. That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I will grant your request. With pardon in hand, Miller hastened to the place where his neighbor was to be executed and arrived just as the prisoner was walking to the scaffold. When the traitor saw Miller, he exclaimed, Old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. But he was astonished as he watched the minister step out of the crowd and produce the pardon which spared his life. Peter Miller performed a noble act and he will be eternally commended. But this is just a shadow of what Christ did. Because Christ not only obtained his enemies' pardons, but died for them to accomplish it. This is, let us not forget it, this is shocking and surprising news in the world we live in. It is something that we should share and give a pleasant shock to people that this is what our God is like and this is what Christ came to do. Christ died for us, his enemies. It is incredible. But still there's something more that God wants us to know about this price of peace 
that he has paid for us. He wants us to know that it profoundly reveals his love for us as well. It proves God's love for us. God shows his love for us, Paul writes, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows his love for us. And again, just like our discussion about peace earlier on, our assurance of God's love can also be spoken of both subjectively and objectively. And it's really important we know this and understand the difference here. As Christians, we can certainly at times be subjectively uh, and internally feel and experience the love of God for us. The reality that God loves us. When we feel that, it is a glorious thing. I think it's part at least of what Paul's describing in verse 5 when he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Holy Spirit, one of his, one of his roles is given to us to help Help us experience from within the assurance of God's love for us. And that's a wonderful thing when we have it. But just like our subjective experience of peace, so too we can have a, our subjective inner sense of the love of God can wax and wane as well. Just as our sense of his peace can come and go, so too can our sense of God's love for us. Day by day, it can wax and wane like the moon from month to month. Sometimes it's strong and vivid and full. Maybe you're here on a Sunday morning. Sometimes you come and you sing and you're so aware of God's love for you in Christ. And other days, here or elsewhere, you just feel nothing. No sense of God's love. Maybe you feel so many reasons why he cannot love you. But no matter, no matter, says Romans 5 verse 8. For the ultimate assurance of God's love for us is not inside us one bit. It is outside of us. Not based in feelings, but in facts. Rooted entirely in what God has done for us in Christ. That while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Such love is not only vast, it is unchanging and undiminishing. It is a love not based on anything in us. It is a love based wholly in God And in the fact that he chose to set his love upon us. And he demonstrated it at the cross. The cross is history. It is past. It is done. And so the proof of his love is now there forever. Nothing reveals the grace and the magnitude and the permanence of God's love for his people more clearly and convincingly and stunningly than the cross of Christ. At the cross, God demonstrated not only his justice, but his love for us. The cross is the ultimate proof of his love. I'd like to read to you again from David Clarkson. I mentioned him earlier on. And I'm I'm sorry, this is a bit of a longer one. I try not to do that, but this is so rich. And I can send this around afterwards, but um, this just did a work in my heart as I thought about the evidence of God's love that we have in the cross. So, so it's come up on the screen. Just think upon these things. What greater expression of love was the world capable of than that the Son of God should die for sinful men? What greater expression of love could the great God vouchsafe than to deliver his Son unto death? What greater expression could Christ make of his love to us than to die for us? And to die such a death and in such a capacity in our stead. 
that he who gave life and being to all things should die, that infinite glory should suffer a shameful death, should endure the cross and despise the shame, that God, blessed forever, should become a curse and die a cursed death, the death of accursed criminals hanging on a tree, that he who was more valuable than 10,000 worlds should give himself a ransom for us and not think his life, his blood, dear, but lay it down freely as a price of our redemption from hell and wrath. He loved you more than riches, more than honor and repute. He loved you more than the comforts of life. He became a man of sorrows. He loved you more than his own blood. He loved you more than his life. For he counted not his life dear, but laid it down as the price of your redemption. He loved you more than blessedness, for he would be made a curse. He loved you more than his own body, for he gave up that to be scourged, pierced, wounded, crucified, hanged on a tree. He loved you more than his own soul. He loved you more than himself. For when he had no greater thing to give, he gave himself. Both the love of the Father and the love of the Son are displayed to us, for you and me, in infinite measure at the cross. And therefore Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you can know objectively and beyond a shadow of any doubt, God loves you. Even if your feelings or your present circumstances right now might be prompting you to wonder otherwise, no, he loves you. There's no profounder truth that we could ever hear or dwell upon than this. No profounder truth. So simple and yet so profound. Apparently there was once a famous uh, Swiss theologian who was in a question and answer session and someone asked him, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? Okay, so this is a deep thinker, uh, a, a, a renowned theologian. What is the greatest thought that's ever gone through your mind? That The person questioning probably had the hopes he was going to give some, some complex answer. Maybe no one would really understand, but everyone would be in awe of from this renowned teacher. But after the theologian had thought for a long while, he simply replied by saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And his answer was profound, and it was utterly correct. There is nothing greater that any of us could ever think about or know than that Jesus loves us and that he showed his love for us by dying for us on the cross. Jesus loves us. Because of the cross, this we know. And if as a Christian you in any way lack the assurance of God's love, just look again at the cross and keep on looking. Look there every morning, every night and every hour in between. We ought as Christians, if we want to be healthy, assured Christians, healthy, happy Christians, we ought to remind ourselves in every way to find passages, to find people, find songs and books and memory verses and journals, everything that will remind us of the proof of God's love for us. Every day is to be a remembrance day for us as Christians. There is nothing more important or vital we can do to maintain our joy and our spiritual vitality 
than to remember the price that was paid for us at Calvary. To look always at the one who loved us and gave himself for us and who did it while we were still sinners, still ungodly, still at war with him. So in all of our fears and uncertainties, let's look again and again at Calvary. And there, instead of fearful uncertainty, we will find unquestionable assurance and security in that irrefutable proof that God loves us and has made peace between us and him forever. There is no greater love, no greater or more lasting peace in all the world than this. It's no wonder then, we're not going to dive into this, but did you notice, it's no wonder that Paul uses the word, he mentions the word rejoice three times in this short passage. He's saying we have every reason to rejoice. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of what is still a broken and war-torn world, ravaged by sin, still God loves us and sent his son to die for us. And so we have eternal peace with him. And let me just say, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, I want to assure you, make a promise to you from God's word this morning, these things could be yours as well. Peace with God and an assurance of his love, they could be yours this morning, even before you get up from your seat this morning to go home. They could be yours today. They could be yours today just as assuredly as maybe the person you see across the room and perhaps by their graying hair, you think, yep, they've been a Christian for 40 years. It's true for them. These things could be as true for you this morning. The assurance of God's love and peace could be yours today if only you are willing to face up to the hopelessness, the hopeless mess you're in, to admit your sin to God. And then to repent and believe the good news about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for ungodly sinners such as us. If you don't feel you know enough or understand enough about what this means this morning, we would love as well as a church to help you in any way we can, to give you every opportunity to find out more. Please do come and ask, or ask any member of the church here. We'd love to help you. But for the rest of us, we have every reason to rejoice. Already, peace with God is ours. Already, the love of God is sure. So, let's pray. And then in our singing, let's rejoice together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made a way for sinners to be saved. For the ungodly to become your children. For your enemies to become your friends. Father, we thank you that we have true and everlasting peace today through our Lord Jesus Christ. For all those of us, Lord, who, whose trust is in your Son, our Saviour this morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in the good of this peace. Lord, to draw near to you every day in full assurance of faith, knowing that we have access to your throne. May we be peacemakers in our world, peacemakers in the relationships that you have given us. And we pray too, please help us to grow in our assurance of your unfathomable love for us. Lord, when the tempter, the enemy, seeks to make us doubt that you could love us at all, when he waves our past and our present sins before our faces and tells us there is nothing in us that could warrant your love, help us, Lord, to agree, yes, there is nothing in me to merit his love. 
But may we also then point a confident finger upwards to our living Saviour in heaven and backwards to his empty cross where he died for our every sin. Father, help us to live in the good of your great love for us in Christ, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to rest and rejoice in your great love today, we ask. Amen.